All right, Forge family. Last week, we were in Zechariah chapter 6, and this was the, the chapter that has the last vision that comes to Zechariah. And uh, he was told to raise his eyes again, and, and there in front of him were four chariots that were just busting it out. They were racing out from between two mountains of bronze. And, you know, in his mind, he goes, okay, I, I see a mountain that's made out of bronze. I see chariots. I know what chariots are and horses, but what does that mean? So he turns to the interpreting angel and asks, what are those? And the angel says, those four are the spirits of heaven who are coming out from standing before the Lord of all the earth. <clears throat> the chariots were drawn by teams of powerful horses. If you recall, there were horses in chapter 1. Spiritual beings, in this case, the same colors, red, black, white, and dappled. And um, uh, the angel of the Lord then dispatches those chariots uh, to go patrol the earth. As the angel did so, he cried out aloud, saying, See, those are who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. Next, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah with instructions for him on what he was supposed to do that day. So he goes and takes an offering from uh, newly arrived uh, exiles, former captives from Babylon. They'd come back to Judah. So he takes that offering, and the Lord says, you take that silver and that gold, and you make from it a, a, uh, an ornate crown. It has many bands on it, many diadems. And he was to form that ornate crown, and then place it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Now, again, the, the Lord was not establishing a form of government in Judah, but he was prophesying that the coming Messiah king would have priestly, excuse me, would have um, priestly functions. Further, both the priest and the king would sit on the same throne. The only way to handle that conundrum is is to recognize that it is in the person and reality of Jesus, the risen Christ, who fulfilled the role of great high priest in the offering up of his own sacrificial blood. And having done so, then he sits down at the Father's right hand to reign and to intercede. He will also be the one to build the future temple of the Lord. So this Zechariah passage points 500 years into the future uh, to the partial fulfillment of it in Christ. So let's pray. Father Almighty, thank you that before time began, you planned out the roles of Savior, great high priest, reigning king, to be laid on your only begotten son. And you, Lord Jesus, agreed, counted the cost, and came among us as fully human and fully divine. We're grateful for this revelation and for the results of that in our lives. Thank you that we have a message and a destiny to carry. Prepare us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Okay, Forge, let's grab the Zechariah texts again. This, uh, this time we're in chapter 7. Um, chapter 7 and chapter 8 are what's called an inclusio, you literary brainiacs. Okay, an inclusio is a literary, literary standalone element. And so we're going to go through half of it this week, and the conclusion is in chapter 8. It begins in the fourth year of King Darius of Persia, 
And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now, the precise accurate dating of this places this prophecy in December of 518 B.C., two years after Zechariah's visions. So in chapter 7, you got a vision, and then there's a gap, time gap. And then the Lord comes to him and, and begins to speak to him again. <clears throat> and it's two years prior to the completion of building the temple by Zerubbabel in Jerusalem. The event that, that uh, this particular chapter records is there's a small delegation that comes to Jerusalem from or by way of Bethel a town 10 miles to the north of Jerusalem. Now, Bethel has a long history in, the, in, the, in Israel. Jacob, fleeing from Esau, arrives exhausted at Bethel and lays down to sleep, but he has this dream of angels ascending and descending. And God makes promises to him, and then, and then uh, Jacob says, oh, this God must dwell here. Surely this is the, the house of God. And so the name stuck, Bethel. It was back to Bethel that the Lord sends him after Shechem, after the slaughter by his two sons. And when he gets to, to Bethel, the Lord changes uh, Jacob's name. And he becomes Israel. Bethel is the border town in which Jeroboam, king of the ten northern tribes, the, the nation of Israel now, during the split, king, split, the split kingdom era, uh, Bethel was at the south, Dan was at the north. And at Bethel, 10 miles north of Jerusalem, Jeroboam builds a, an altar with a golden calf on it. He starts this cult of golden calf worship, turning the people's hearts away from going down to Jerusalem. Now, these two men who come either from or through Bethel, um, they come to inquire of the priests of the temple and also of the prophets in Jerusalem regarding fasting. The Jews of the exile had taken on days of fasting uh, related to the calamities that had occurred in Jerusalem when it was overwhelmed by the Babylonian armies. <clears throat> and, and when they fasted, <clears throat> uh, it was to commemorate and grieve of those days. The fall of the wall of Jerusalem was one of those day, days of fasting. The, the burning and total destruction of the temple of, of Solomon was one of those days of fasting. Now, Sherezer, okay, was the name of one of those men. He carries an Assyrian name. And the second man was Regem Melech. His name means the king's heap. So what that would mean was when offerings were brought to the king, a portion of the harvest, uh, a tithe to the king or whatever it was, the people would come and they would pour it out in front of the king. And there it was, the king's heap. And so this guy carried that name. Now, anyone who bears the name Melech is a king. Okay, a ruler, a sheikh, a man with a fiefdom, a tribe, or a people group that may have come into Bethel and settled there after the Assyrian armies wiped away all the ten tribes of Israel. They captured them and, and dispersed them in the nations. Or that particular people group may have come 70 years previous or in that period of time to live in Bethel after the Babylonians put a dragnet around the population of Judah and take them into captivity. And along the way, they may have come to be followers of Yahweh. It is uncertain in the text if they came from Babylon, 
down through Bethel to Jerusalem or whether they came out of this little village 10 miles to the north called Bethel and just came into town. There are approximately 300 known at that time, 300 exiles who had gone back to Bethel. Apparently they, that was hometown for them. They went back and resettled in Bethel. So there's two possibilities. These two men had, had come to get a, a reading, if you will, on fasting and be able to take it back to the exiles in Babylon, or they were to get that reading and go back to Bethel and help their little conquer that, that group of 300 in Bethel. <clears throat> Can't tell from the text. But they come with this question, and the question really is to get clarity about the 70 years of fasting that those in captivity had been doing. So the question is, quote, shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? Am I supposed to continue mourning and grieving and weeping and not eating? Because I've done this for many, many years now. So the two prophets in Jerusalem were Haggai and Zechariah. And immediately the word of the Lord pierces Zechariah and he opens his mouth and there's the word of the Lord right there. Because the word of the Lord of hosts comes in that instant. The Lord said, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves and do you not drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous in its cities around it and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? So this delegation comes to inquire of the Lord. Literally, that means to soften the face of the Lord. Okay? So it wouldn't be this scowling, oh, they, you know, they didn't, want, they didn't want judgment. They wanted the Lord to go, oh, yes, in whatever it was that they were asking. Regarding the fasting day in the fifth month, that was to, con- to commemorate and to grieve and to mourn the day of total destruction of the temple. And the fasting day in the seventh month was to grieve and remember the assassination of Gedaliah. He was the man that the Babylonians handpicked out of the the Jewish population to rule for Babylon. Now, we would call that man a quisling, (laughs) if you're not familiar with that term. In other words, he was viewed as a traitor because he took over governing when the king of Israel, king of Judah should have done that. Anyway, he was under the 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 satrapy of of the Persian leadership. Uh, That's recorded in Jeremiah 41. In all, there were four special fasting days that the the refugees from Judah had taken to themselves to try and remember bad things, those bad things, the terrible days that happened when he went out to captivity. So in reality, um, these guys are coming with a question. Just Here's an example. Do I fast in the fifth day, fifth month? Uh, there's really three others that they're really asking about. They want to know about all four. In truth, there's only one day that the Lord required for fasting. It's the day of atonement. The word of the Lord cuts to the quick and doesn't even answer the question on fasting. That will come at the end of chapter 8. But the Lord, through Zechariah, immediately challenges the practice of extra fasting. A previous example of the Lord's anger at Judah for extra fasting, extra sacrifices, extra feast days is seen in Isaiah chapter 1. And it goes on and on and on over the the practice, the religious practices, the ritual practices that had accreted 
to the supposed worship of God. And God says, and I'm going to put some words in the Lord's mouth, okay? Quote, this is Patterson, okay? Now, this is not the Lord, but the Lord, Lord says, I'm sick of this. Enough of this legalism that is not from the heart. I hate these practices, unquote. You know, that it's very clear he wants none of that in, in the first chapter of Isaiah. Now, Zechariah delivers the mail, telling, that these two, telling these two men, and then all of Judah, to recall when Jerusalem was prosperous, even when the Negev desert lands, way to the south, out, out even extending into the Sinai Peninsula, and the, the foothills, the Shephelah, the, the foothills that stretched all the way down to the, the Philistine lands. That was all populated. That was all under cultivation. Orchards and olive groves and flocks and herds and fields, fields of grain. It was at that time that the Lord had spoken about his disgust with rote religious practice. And then the axe falls in the Lord's words. He said, do you really, did you do all that fasting for me or was it for yourselves? So in Isaiah 58... I want us to read, uh, here, I'm going to read it, you're going to listen. <laughs> Hear this, Isaiah 58, verse 3. Why have we fasted, and thou dost not see? That's a cry from the people. Why have we humbled ourselves, and thou dost not notice? Behold, on the day of our fast, you find your desire, and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention. And strife, and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. It is a fast like this that I choose. A day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed, and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness? To undo the bands of the yoke? And to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide, to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the, into the house? When you see the naked, to cover him and to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light will break out like the dawn. And your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden. And like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations. And you will be called the repairer of the breach. The restorer of the streets in which to dwell. Verse 8. An additional word from the Lord is poured out by Zechariah. Quote, Thus has the Lord of hosts said. So he's, he's, he's quoting other prophetic sources. Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan or the stranger or the poor. 
and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. So this is a command to the delegation who came from Bethel and to all of Judah to repent, to do the fasting the Lord's way. Now you intermingle the Isaiah's instruction out of Isaiah 58 on the fast, which the Lord chooses, and you mingle those with the words here in verse 8. They, they basically overlay each other. They're, they're saying much, much, much the same thing. The first two are a do this commandment, and the latter two are commands that say, don't do that. Let's begin first with the administration of justice. The Hebrew word is mishpat, and we studied that when we were in the, the um, servant psalms of Isaiah. This justice is not abstract, but it is a community-wide understood set of rules, duties, rights in that fellowship. The task of righteousness is to apply this justice, this proper ordering of society. That word looks forward to the justice that will be present when the servant, the branch, the Messiah is reigning on the earth. Secondly, the Lord says that this small committee from Bethel, they're they're to practice mercy and compassion, period. Hesed is is mercy. It's translated here, mercy. Hesed is the the Hebrew word that most closely approximates our word in the New Testament for grace. Grace. It spans faithful love and mercy set against loyalty and steadfastness. Compassion is the second word in this this command. Compassion is related to the Hebrew word for womb. And it it points at tender, intentional love. Third, do not oppress widows, orphans, strangers, and the poor. Okay, the category of people in the communities that are the most financially challenged with few resources, much less a roof over their head. Now, strangers here would be foreigners, aliens, Gentiles, non-Jews, some of whom may have chosen to live in Jewish communities. And some may have been shipwrecked. You know, the the donkey died right there in the middle of town, and they're stuck. Okay, And they have no no resources, they have no friends, and they have no resource. You know, they're just, they're there in the middle of town. They don't have relationships, they're stuck. And the word oppress here, where the command starts, do not oppress. Oppress is also translated afflict. This is not the casual overlooking of others' needs, which is included in this commandment. Don't do that. Okay? But instead, um, it encompasses actual harm, intentional exclusion, and any predatory behavior toward the weak, and the disenfranchised. Fourth, lastly, the Lord says, don't devise evil in thought or deed towards one another. This certainly points the finger at a spirit of anger, of hatred, of bitterness, of vindictiveness, of revenge, that would lead beyond inner thoughts to physical, emotional, financial, social, or reputational harm. Do not think evil. Now, without clinging to the Lord, any ritual religious practice done by rote or calendar will lead to moral and spiritual disaster. All you have to do is read 
accounts of the Dark Ages all the way to the Reformation in, in our, if you will, Western history. That's exactly what happened. You, know, you go back to rote things and you have immorality run rampant and, uh, and it's just a, a very different, it's a spiritual disaster. <clears throat> Verses 11 to 14 in the text here speak of the response to the Lord's ways and commandments by the forefathers of those then in Judah and those still in Babylon. Those that heard from the prophets before captivity, before Babylon knocked on the door. Hmm. Number one, they refused to pay attention. They turned a stubborn shoulder. They stopped their ears from hearing and made their hearts like flint. We don't really know what that mineral was. It, it, translators say, well, it was probably flint. We don't know. But it was a hard mineral of some, of some, some type. Hard, sharp mineral. Quote, so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. So the lesson for the people of, of, uh, Ju of Judah, the lessons for the people at Bethel, the lessons for the people still spread out up and down Babylon is do not be like your unrepentant, unfaithful, covenant-breaking forefathers or the same judgment will fall on you. And some of that judgment actually was their lot already because they'd experienced that living in Babylon as captives. And when they came back, they came back by and large poor. They didn't loot Babylon like the, the Israelites took from the Egyptians. Okay? What was really needed was that all individuals in Judah... That would include the 10 miles north end of the border into, into, into Bethel, into the area of, of, uh, that had been Israel. All those people to take a gritty, dogged grip and practice the same thing. That you grip the truth and you practice the truth. And you do it wholeheartedly to result in genuine new life in the spirit. That would empower godly community. Verses 13 and 14 conclude chapter 7 with the hard words. And then it says, And when it came about that just as he called, meaning the Lord, and they would not listen, so they called, and I would not listen. So the Lord says, in the past and in the present, there's calling out, and I don't, I don't hear you. I don't listen. I close my ears to you. But I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they had not known. Thus the land is desolated behind them, so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land desolate. And it was into that desolation, if you will, that the exiles were coming back. Now, who do you know that has a heart of stone? I mean, perhaps even a heart of stone that you see changing. Becca, your daddy is one of those, okay? You've been reporting of that shift, that change, okay? But who else do you know that might have in your, in your businesses, in your neighborhoods, who has the heart of stone? The Lord loves them, okay, and reaches out to them. This past week, I read an account of a man that I like, at least the part of him that I can see, that I've been exposed to. And in the account, he talked about the fact that he and his wife had come to a conclusion they had to divorce. It just wasn't working. And they both agreed to it. 
And so they made their move to do that. But the local church they were attending disagreed with them and really worked alongside of them diligently to help them work on marriage issues and stay together. They chose to divorce. And a couple of years later, he said, I resigned from that church, resigned my membership, because my social beliefs no longer were compatible or workable with, their former, with his former religious beliefs. Now, do you recall the sermon that I, I gave sometime early in the summer that spoke of the perils of progressive Christianity, especially the section dealing with beliefs? Because the, the beliefs under that label of progressive Christianity, those are beliefs and feelings that people grip and hang on to and practice that surpass Scripture as an authority. The Bible is completely disregarded if you disagree with it. And they surpass in that process the community of righteousness in favor of a community of immorality. Now, we live in a moment of time, but those exiles from Babylon that still said they worshiped God, okay? They lived in that backlash, if you will, of, of the captivity, the scourge of God's promised judgment. And if they continued to harden their hearts, it was going to come on them again. And, uh, they, and they would turn away from him and conduct their religion as they felt they ought, what felt good to them. And here we are, 21st century North America. There we are. Same pattern, same temptations, same penalties. So you, we are to cling with that dogged grasp to truth and to practice it wholeheartedly. Now, we are to pray for the prodigals who have left righteousness behind in favor of feelings and experiences. We're to pray for those who have never experienced the loyal love of the Lord. We're to pray for those whose ritual-based religious expressions have now made them entirely vulnerable, vulnerable to the lies of the enemy. In one year, 1997, the Lord God completely overturned the cult known as the Worldwide Church of God. It was uh, Herbert W. Armstrong, the Armstrong thing, um, and it was a, it was a cult. And um, the Lord began calling out to their leadership. You know, they were broken. You know, their leadership was broken. And the Lord, through some spokesman from the evangelical community, just said, thus says the Lord. Okay, and the people that were part of that cult were called to repent of their harsh mis misapplications of Old Testament practices and rituals and the law. They were trying their best to keep the law. There were mass conversions. Not all, not all, but, but the huge majority of that cult turned as one and gave their hearts and lives to Jesus. So if the Lord did that for many, many thousands, he can do that for those whose rituals are empty and desperate. Whether bowing five times to Mecca or praying through the rosary or attempting to mollify a hundred million gods with their idols spread across a subcontinent or those whose God is pleasure or wealth, or even elite sports figures who cross themselves and then point at the sky. Billions of empty lives doing their rituals. Look carefully at yourself in the presence of the Spirit, asking for insight from Him to your own 
less than God's ways. He's quick to forgive and wash that away. But that comes with the expectation from heaven that we and anyone who turns to him will begin to practice obedience to him and to the word. Let's pray. Lord, the Spirit, thank you. Thank you that you are the one who comes alongside to teach, encourage, to convict, to lead us to be holy. We want to be those who grasp the truth and practice truth and have it be a sweet fragrance, not a ritual expression. Purge us of that religious stuff. Come, Spirit, and instruct us how to fast correctly and frequently. In Jesus' name, amen.